All right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the War Room to the Boardroom podcast. Today we have my guest, Dr. Joan Erlacher, EP. I'm your host, as always, Mayshawn Wilson, Global Strategy and Ops at Google, Combat Veteran, Duke MBA in Westbrook. Those that don't know, Dr. Erlacher covers, she'll be covering both her transition to academia and what transition looks like in military. Dr. Erlacher is a adjunct faculty member, leadership coach, professional speaker, and she's also a military spouse, graduate University of St. Thomas. So without further delay, I'll turn it over to Dr. Erlacher. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you for making the time. Uh, you know, we're excited to hear your insights and all your great wisdom. So to, to kick us off, if you could just share a little about, you know, who you are and kind of how you came into this whole military Yes. I mean, I, I did not have any military background growing up, family connections, anything. My family was farmers. <laughs> um, and so when I met my husband, I was actually working at a university as a faculty member, kind of thought I would be there, you know, forever. I was on campus. I loved my job, loved what I was doing. I was working in uh, Minnesota and, you know, met my husband who was a special operations officer at the time. He had, was deployed. I was like to joke, he had one deployment while we were dating, one deployment while we were engaged and then was deployed our first year of marriage, you know? So we were one of those couples that just, we, I just jumped in the deep end. And so it was, it was great because, you know, I met him and he said, well, I just don't know if the civilian girl with no military background can really handle being married to a military guy. But I had grown up overseas. My parents worked overseas. So I was used to the world lifestyle of moving, saying goodbyes, making new friends. And so, you know, just jumping into the military community was such a just a wonderful experience for me. I found, you know, when we would move, I could make friends, you know, instantly because everyone is ready to make friends as soon as you meet each other because you don't know how long you're going to be together in the same place. So it was really wonderful, like transitioning from having really no prior military experience into this military life. When I married my husband, of course, I had to give up my job at the university campus on campus. But I'm so grateful because in this world that we live in today, you know, we have this wonderful virtual connections. So I was able to continue teaching virtually at a couple of different universities and just kind of maintain my career that way, which I think is a wonderful asset for spouses today. You know, despite the military lifestyle of moving, we have so many opportunities to be able to still stay connected to whatever our passions are, you know, with so many ways to connect virtually. So yeah, and then, you know, we were married, we've been married, I got to be an active duty military spouse, for a number of years. And then a few years ago, my husband actually retired. And so we got to kind of go through that whole process of what does that look like? He still does do part-time contracting, supporting military exercises. So like right now he's out in the field for six weeks. And so I'm still getting that TDY, you know, kind of short deployment experience when he's out uh, supporting uh, military exercises and he loves it. He still gets to be a part of uh, the community in that way. And we live near Fort Liberty, North Carolina. So still really embedded. You know, my kids go to school with lots of friends who have military parents. And so just still getting to be a part of a military community, even since he's retired has been wonderful. So yeah. That's got to be an adjustment. What, what did your parents do to, to, to cause all those movies to living overseas and farmers? I just want to make sure I got that. 
So they work for a nonprofit. And so they've done a lot of work with leadership development, with youth programs, things of that nature, just in a, a number of communities in Latin America. So that's where I grew up, hablando español. Si hay alguien que habla español, I got to grow up, you know, speaking another language. So when I, I met my husband, he actually, you know, has a couple languages from his military training. And unfortunately, we didn't have the same lang other languages. So now we're both learning additional languages so we could ch chat. But yeah, so my parents worked in nonprofit work, which is very similar, nonprofit international work, very similar to military, right? Serving, traveling, transitioning to serve and to make a contribution. So it was a great uh, preparation for being a military spouse. Yes, más claro que sí. Um, <laughs> and so you currently work as a lecturer and so you're still in the academic phase. Can you talk about with all those transitions, how does that work? you know, given the number of moves, there are a lot of things that happen how you made that work. And, the great thing about my business, so when my husband was still active duty, he really encouraged me to start my own business because coming out of uh, academia, I had done a lot of research at the time on generational trends. So I was recognizing um, that the college students who were coming in were not learning the same way that college students had learned five years ago or 10 years ago. And many of them were graduating from college, going into their profession of choice and really struggling uh, to connect in their workplace. And so as I was watching this trend um, being on a college campus, I was really compelled to understand why are students struggling in school with the way that we're teaching as we've always taught and why are they struggling going into workplaces when not a lot has changed in how workplaces function. And this was, you know, 15 years ago that I started doing my research. And so I really start to recognize the world has changed significantly. Young people are growing up in a world that looks very different. As a result, they learn differently. They have different expectations of leaders all of that. So I started researching generational trends and I had started kind of presenting and doing some lectures and seminars on that when I was on campus, going to conferences and presenting and what have you. So when I got into, you know, when I start moving as a military spouse, my husband's like, well, why don't you just start your own business? And then as you get invitations, you can, you know, just continue to speak. So that's what happened because I already kind of had a network you know, I would get invitations to come and speak and present. So I could travel. I was traveling all, I continue to travel all over the U.S. So it didn't really, and I've even traveled internationally. So it didn't really matter where I was based. As long as there was an airport, you know, somewhere nearby, I could travel to the conferences or the, the companies that I was working with. I've done a lot of work, you know, with the military. So the other thing that I've found is when you move, you develop additional networks. So, and when working with military community, People are moving all the time too, which has really helped broaden even my network. So someone might hear me present at you know, one base and then they move to another base and they're like, hey, we heard this presenter, we should bring her in. She, she can talk about why, you know, why the younger troops are thinking differently about things or, you know, responding differently than we've than the way we're doing it. And so it really helped broaden my network, both moving. And then being in a community where a lot of people are moving, I, I just was able to build a lot more connections very, very quickly. And so much, like I said, again, so much of what we do is virtually. So doing like webinars, 
podcasts, presentations virtually, I can really do that from anywhere. So I would say moving and being in a community where a lot of people are moving really was a great marketing strategy for me because it allowed me more exposure to more communities, more people, and really helped me broaden who I work with. So, you know, it is stressful at times, but I think it it's still, it has a lot of benefits in that, in that regard. Really embracing the dynamic of being mm-hmm. and then using works of people that you meet in to really yeah. scope it. No, that's super helpful. And so, you know, you're an entrepreneur, you're a professional speaker. Can you talk about, I guess, how you how you make that pivot? Because I, I would assume not all lecturers, you know, go into this path. And so are there certain skills you have to develop? Is there certain like resources that are out there to help people pursue that path? I mean, the thing that I would say is most critical, and this we're finding in every facet of life today, whether it's, you know, in the workplace with other moms at the playground or with, you know, people that are in your community, your neighbors, what have you, is emotional intelligence is emerging as one of the most critical skills you can have for success in every area of life. You know, even, I mean, military marriages where you are spending a lot of time apart sometimes, the skills that come with emotional intelligence are so, so critical. So if you're not familiar with the term emotional intelligence, it really kind of has four or five components depending on which definition you use, but it's really being self-aware. Am I aware of myself? Am I aware of my emotions? Am I aware of what causes me to struggle or be successful? Am I aware of what makes me frustrated um, or happy? And then once I'm aware, how do I manage those emotions? Do I have good strategies for managing how I respond to disappointment or to moving, separation, making new friends, all those things? And then how aware am I of other people's emotions? And how do I respond to those emotions? So it's really being aware of my emotions, other people's emotions, and then managing both myself and my relationships well. I, I really, really appreciate the book, Emotional Intelligence 2.0. It is a super quick read, and it has tons of practical strategies, especially for those of us in military communities where we're constantly meeting new people and saying goodbye to people. It, it just gives so many practical skills on just how to navigate relationships, interpersonal you know, conflict or opportunities and, in such a powerful way. And what I have found is those skills serve me well as a military spouse, as serving in a military community, as well as this type of work where, you know, I'll get on a plane and fly somewhere and not know a single person where I'm going, get off the plane. You know, someone picks me up, takes me to the conference center. I'm, I'm meeting with people that I've never met before and I may never see again. Right. And I need to be able to stand up and have rapport with them as I'm sharing, you know, information that will hopefully help them. And those emotional intelligence skills are so critical. So even one that I was just, I pulled the book off the shelf yesterday and was referencing again, like one of the skills, just to give an example, is a back pocket questions. What are back pocket questions? Questions that I just have ready to pull out at a moment's notice when I meet someone new that I can ask that shows that I care, that I'm engaged, that I want to know more about them. And, and that those, those skills come in wonderfully as we're meeting new people, as we're engaging new people. And I really have found those types of skills, paying attention to people's facial expressions, body language, you know, and being able to respond appropriately. Even how we communicate. Do I smile a lot? 
or do I have a frown on my face, right? And if I smile a lot, it just shows people I am wanting to engage. I want to hear more about you. When I make eye contact, it means I'm paying attention. So those are examples of emotional intelligence skills that really serve us so well and has really been critical, I think, to me being able to build a business. So often people are like, well, social media marketing is what's most critical. Your website needs to be amazing. And yes, those things are necessary. If someone hears about you and you don't have any online you know, footprint, it's going to be hard to think you're believable. But 95% of my business and growing my business as a military spouse over the last 10 years has been word of mouth. Absolutely. 95% has been word of mouth. Do people feel like I'm authentic? Do they feel like I care? Do they feel like I'm invested in the information that I'm learning and that I truly want to help their organization thrive and succeed? And so I would say if you're an entrepreneur or maybe you're a military spouse who's thinking about starting something new, really investing in developing those emotional intelligence skills is the most critical thing that I can I can tell you has been helpful to me. The other thing, this is really, really hard, is just seeking feedback. You know, as you are engaging with people, you know, finding some trusted friends or trusted colleagues who can really give you feedback. How do people perceive me? What do I do that is beneficial, helpful? What are things that I do that maybe cause frustration for people around me? And really taking that sincere feedback has also helped me as painful as it has been to get that honest feedback sometimes. It has been invaluable in helping me develop skills that have allowed me to thrive as a military spouse and as an entrepreneur. So yeah, those would be two things I would say have been super helpful is just that emotional intelligence and then really valuing feedback from others. Emotional intelligence, giving, I guess, that that firsthand account of how amazing you are. And then from there, continuing to develop. So question for you, especially as a researcher of the military spouse, when you talk about feedback, often very hard for a lot of people especially this time you we're talking annual performance reviews and things like that. Mm-hmm. What are some ways or some practices that would you send it up to be more open to feedback, both in receiving it from the company, also to create an environment where to use as like an So there's a great term, psychological safety, that I think is really key to creating an environment where feedback is welcomed, where feedback can flow freely. And psychological safety means that this is a place where it is it is safe to make a mistake and learn from that mistake. This is a place where I can give feedback and not be punished for giving feedback. This is a place where I can there's there's a level of trust. So, you know, if for those of us who are in leadership roles of some sort, creating that type of environment where we welcome feedback and when people give feedback, we affirm it. Thank you for giving that feedback. We appreciate feedback here. So that becomes really, really critical. The same applies as individuals. So if if I if someone gives me feedback and I even if I think that the feedback is wrong, you know, that it's not accurate. Instead of immediately going into defensive mode, which is often what we do when we get corrective feedback, to pause and say, thank you so much for giving me that feedback. I really need to think about that more. I need to reflect on that more. 
it, instead of going immediately into defensive mode and to be able to step back and maybe say, take a day or two, think about it. And sometimes there might be things that people are seeing that are not what we're intending, but something that we're saying or doing is communicating that, even if that's not our intention. So then having a follow-up conversation saying, I really appreciate what you said to me the other day. That is not my intention. Here's what I intend, you know, when I'm saying this or when I'm doing this. And so what is causing you know, that perception and how can I maybe adjust or change? So when we feel, when people feel like feedback is welcomed, it's appreciated, it's affirmed, that becomes really, really important to healthy feedback. And it creates a sense of psychological safety. I'm going to be safe if I give this feedback, someone's not going to lash out at me. They're not going to get defensive. They're not going to get angry. So our response to feedback becomes really, really critical, especially too, if we're a leader modeling, taking feedback and expressing appreciation for it, because then we're saying to everyone around us, this is, this is helpful. As we're getting, you know, a performance review or feedback from a, a supervisor or a boss, you know, someone higher in the chain of command, I think it's it's really important too to express, you know, how can I improve, and where do you see I can improve, and being able to then express thank you for that feedback just shows that we're willing, we want to grow, we want to develop. So just that it can be really hard, but really pausing the defensive reaction, and you know, even if we can't respond in that moment saying, thank you. I want to think about this more. I want to reflect on it more. And then following up with a conversation later can be really key. But then creating that environment where there's psychological safety, where people know that they can give honest feedback and it's going to be appreciated. And there's not going to be some sort of negative reaction for giving it becomes really important. That's helpful. So creating that trust where it's okay mm -hmm. to make mistakes mm -hmm. and fail. You, whether you agree with it. In terms of that psychological, how tactically as a leader do you create that psychological safety while people are in the military or layoffs or anything like that? You maintain that or establish that in the midst of that transit or struggle. Yeah, that's, that is hard. So here's what, what is also emerging right now. Like when we just look at leadership trends in general and what people are responding to positively, which kind of mirrors then what creates psychological safety. One of the things is authenticity. Do I f feel like my leader is authentic? Do they authentically care about me? Do they authentically care about this environment? Do they authentically care about the mission? or the vi vision of my team or my organization or, or wherever I'm serving my unit. And when people feel like their leader is authentic, it creates a lot more psychological safety. So, and one of the things with that is it requires a leader, which, you know, sometimes in military context, this can be hard, you know, so there's, it's finding the balance with what, what look, you know, how this works in different contexts. But what we find, especially with younger generations today, is that vulnerability of some sort creates a sense of authenticity. If I can trust my leader to say, that didn't go the way we hoped it would go, or this was maybe something we could have done better, or I'm having a hard time with this decision, you know, showing some level of humanity, <laughs> you know, that there is a level of my emotions are involved in this too, or 
this has been a hard decision or I feel the pain of this decision. So when we can show some vulnerability as leaders, it creates a sense that I'm being authentic. I'm not just putting on a face, saying what I'm supposed to say, but I'm showing my humanity. And that really allows people to feel like they can trust. They can trust you as a person, even if they might not like the decision, they might not like what's happening. So that a some vulnerability as leaders where we're showing the side of us that's human has such, such impact today. And part of this, I think, is because we are navigating so many virtual connections and there is such a disconnect. So when I'm in a space with a person and I feel like they are being authentic, they're showing me their humanity, that has a significant impact. The other thing that we're finding helps create psychological safety is when we just acknowledge the reality of the emotions that are occurring or or the the reality of the situation. Like this situation is it's horrible. It's it stinks. This is not what what we had hoped for. This is not what we want. This is this is painful for many of us. This is causing disappointment. It's causing frustration. So when we can even acknowledge the reality of the situation, again, that gives us a sense of authenticity, right? People know we are being authentic. We are we're we're recognizing the reality of the situation. Some people's lives are being completely disrupted, you know, or this is going to derail some people's career path that they were on and that they had hoped to pursue. So when we as leaders can show authenticity in our own experience as well as affirm the reality of other people's experience. It creates a sense of, okay, this is an environment where people are real people, you know, and I can trust that there's people trying to do their best, even amidst really difficult situations. And it doesn't change the reality of the situation, but it makes it easier for people to, you know, kind of navigate the emotions of it because they're not being, you know, they're not being invalidated. They're not being ignored. You know, so when you walk away from a difficult situation and you feel like you've also, you've been betrayed, you've been ignored, you've been invalidated, it just piles onto the difficulty of whatever else is going on. You know, if you have been laid off or there is a difficult transition. So making that transition as human as possible, you know, adding a human touch to it and saying, this is hard. You are seen. You are appreciated. We validate this is difficult. We validate the, the team, the organization, whatever has let you down. And as leaders, we recognize that and we are sorry that happened. Those kinds of conversations or that kind of attitude can just really help navigate really difficult conversations. I mean, we know the environment today with social media and news feeds and algorithms that are feeding us, you know, what we want to hear and polarizing our society. I mean, I could go on and on about all of that. But with all of that going on, when people encounter a real person who really cares, who is authentic, it really helps create that psychological safety that can help people navigate difficult situations a little bit easier than it would be otherwise. The other thing that I'll just say is trust. Trust is huge. Um, so a couple of things that help build trust is, again, that vulnerability. When people feel like they see you as a real person, they know you care. Even though you're making difficult decisions or decisions they don't like, they know that you are invested. They know that you care. You've shown them in different ways that you care. You've connected with people outside of what's required of you as a boss or a leader or a teammate or whatever. 
you, you've asked how they're doing when you didn't have to, or you've shared some experiences, done something, you know, crazy, went out and had a drink or something where you just built some trust with this person as a person outside of just what's strictly required from your role. That can help also create psychological safety and trust today is so powerful. One of the things that we're seeing is that people follow individuals more than they follow institutions today. In the past, people might have joined a team because it was, you know, I want to join, you know, the Navy, or I want to join Google, or I want to join whatever. There was something with that. I'm going to be a part of this institution. But today people are following individuals much more than they're following an institution. So when there's a leader within that institution that they see building trust, modeling authenticity and vulnerability, they are much more committed to that individual and the institution as a result. So yeah, really just taking time to build trust in whatever ways we can. Follow through is another big piece of it. If we say we're going to do something, following through on it, that helps develop trust. So yeah, just a couple of things that can can make a big difference. All amazing points. Vulnerability, follow through, kind of some of those more points that we hear. And so I think that the last question I have in terms of like leadership and like things that you're seeing in your research, I'm curious about, so I know often you're on social media, like, this generation, whether it's Gen Z, Gen Alpha, it's like this, and like, why are they like this? And we don't get it. Can you talk about those different generations, how they show up to work, how work expectation changing because of the environment that we're in? Yes, absolutely. And I mean, this goes back to what originally, you know, started me on this journey of research over 15 years ago was just how I was seeing young people, young college graduates not connecting in whatever workplace they were going into in the same way. And the reality is that we're we're not just experiencing generational gaps right now. I like to say we're experiencing a cross-cultural gap. Part of this is because I grew up in another culture. And so I'm very aware of like how culture plays into things, what values drive our behaviors. And I think that is what is so key today is for us in different generations to pause and truly understand what are the values that are driving each generation um, and how are those feeding into then their behaviors around expectations and work ethic and things of that nature. So one of the big ones I was just, I'm working with, you know, several organizations that are part of an association right now on doing some research for them and looking at how the generational trends are showing up. And one of the things that keeps coming up is, the younger generation saying, we don't want to just work a nine to five. We don't want to just work a nine to five. Well, the older generation see that and they're like, well, you don't want to work nine to five. You know, you don't want to show up and work. Well, the reality is that they're saying, we want, we want an integrated life where we're not just showing up from nine to five and making a difference and serving and investing. We want our whole life to be full of meaning and purpose. We want our work to be full of meaning and purpose. We want our friendships, our relationships, our family to be have meaning and purpose. And so there's this sense that because of technology, our lives are more integrated. You know, when my parents started in the workforce, you went to work and you didn't have any idea what was going on at home or with your kids at school. You know, so it was compartmentalized. You went to work at nine and you finished at five. And then at five was when family time started. You know, and then maybe you went to a community meeting and that's when your community civic service started or whatever. So our lives were more compartmentalized. And the reality is today, they're not. They're integrated. We can we can sit and FaceTime with our kids, you know, from school while we're at work. And so everything is more integrated. 
And so young people today want a more integrated life, which is changing their expectations. They want flexibility in the workplace. You know, they want to be able to work if if they have their kids have a baseball game at three in the afternoon and they're all they're doing in the afternoon is putting together PowerPoint slides for a presentation the next day that they can start at finish at eight o'clock when their kids go to bed. Why wouldn't I leave the office, go see my kids play baseball, and then when they're in bed, finish the PowerPoint slides that I can do at home on my couch as easily as I can in the office. So it is the values are just different. This desire for integrated lifestyle that allows for flexibility and lets me prioritize meaningful things in every part of my life is just different. So I think really pausing to understand what are the values that are driving the changes, because often we just see someone wanting to do something different than us. And we're like that they're doing it wrong. They don't want, they don't value what I value. Well, the reality is they might, it just looks different. So the other, you know, the other thing is, is people are get frustrated because young people sometimes move more frequently from job to job, you know, every two to three years they're transitioning. And everyone's like, well, they don't care about, you know, their careers. They don't care about the company. The reality is, is the, it looks different. So my parents' generation, you would get a job with a company. And what was the best work decision was often to work for that company for 30 years. You would get promotions, you would get pay raises, and eventually you might even get a pension. I mean, nowadays, someone entering the workforce has no dream of a pension. You know, that's almost mm-hmm. irrelevant anymore in, in many work context. And they're going into the workforce and they're realizing in order to get promotions, often companies are coming and going and changing so quickly. I need to keep my network. I need to keep my skill sets constantly evolving, constantly developing. They've lived through 2008 and the pandemic, and they've seen people who worked for 20 or 30 years get laid off and have no other job skills, have no other connections. So actually a smart career choice is to broaden my network, broaden my skill sets, you know, develop new competencies. And so sometimes changing jobs is the best career choice. It's the way that they're expanding their knowledge, expanding their networks, and actually trying to make a contribution that's going to have longevity in the world that they live in, where the company or the job that they're doing right now might not even exist in 10 years. It is just a whole different mindset, right? So understanding the values. And that's where, you know, part of emotional intelligence is really taking time to ask questions and listen and understand why people feel what they feel and why they're doing what they're doing, which can help us then come alongside them and, you know, help them make wise choices given the context that we're leading or interacting with them in. So, yeah, so that's what I would say across generations, really what we need today, the world has changed so much. The experiences of people are so different that we need to just take time and really understand what are the values that are driving these behaviors. And I have found over and over again, just asking a question sometimes resolves the whole thing. I was working with a younger colleague on a project and I just felt like she was not pulling her weight. She was not, you know, doing her part of the job. And I was like, I know all the reasons why I'm feeling this, you know, the generational differences. And when we got together, I I just felt like there was one question I could ask. I just asked her a simple question that just opened up this whole discussion about how she was feeling, the things she was navigating, and allowed us to come to a really mutual understanding of how to collaborate well on this project together, even though we were coming out from different points. So sometimes just asking those questions and really listening to understand the other person's values and experience 
can help us alleviate so much conflict and misunderstanding and really bring us to a place of collaboration intergenerationally. So, yeah. Gave me a lot of gold there. Combination between, you know, changing expectations, kind of understanding that reality of what people are work and the new world that we operate in here, the transparency element. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll say we'll say societal traumas that happen also change those things. Really coming from that place of understanding, you know, inquiry rather than making assumptions about Generation Jones had just said Ashley was working on a leadership article with a mentor for HBS. And my parents were like, you know, you should just stay in the military for like 20, 30 years. And I was like, our ball game out. Yeah. Love you though. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. A lot of gold there. In addition to the work that you've done so far, are there any like books or you know different things that you're working with that share with our readers who like to learn a little bit more about your research and are really trying to work to their own like work mm-hmm. transition? Yeah, so my website's leadingtomorrow.org. I do have a podcast, the Leading Tomorrow podcast, where I talk about generational trends, those types of things. I have a couple of books I've written, but they're more for nonprofit faith-based context. So if you're working in like a nonprofit faith-based, my books kind of talk about how the generational trends show up in those contexts. Some books that I would just recommend if you're in education, anything by growingleaders.org, Tim Elmore. He has some great research out there. In the workplace, Gene Twenge has a couple of great books out there just on generation generational trends. Her latest one is just called Generations. If you're just wanting to understand the different values and mindsets that generations are bringing, to the table. That's very helpful. If you are a parent, there's a group called Access out there that really helps talk about what are some of the like terms that kids are using today and how do you understand those. And then I'll just throw this out here because I'm passionate about how technology is impacting all of us, but especially the next generation, is there's a couple of books like The TechWise Family or My TechWise Life that are just really helpful. And if you go to healthychildren.org or Common Sense Media and just type in media plan, it will actually pull up a template for making a personal media plan or a family media plan, which can be super helpful too, uh, just in thinking about how do we use technology and navigate technology in our lives, in our homes, in our workplaces, and what have you. So those are just a few few resources. But yeah, anything by Gene Twenge, Tim Almore, Great stuff in the context of education or the workplace as far as generations. Oh, great. I'll definitely have to follow up so I can share. Yes. Um, in addition to that, you've given some really lessons, some really great podcasts and books to follow. Really amazing. Is there any way that anywhere where our listeners can follow up with you if they have more questions or just want to see what you're working on? Yeah, I mean, I you like I said, my website is leadingtomorrow.org. You can contact me there. I also am on social media. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Jolene Erlocker on Facebook and uh, Instagram is leading tomorrow. So you can connect with me there. As far as, you know, just something to take away. I mean, I guess like what I'm so passionate about is seeing the next generation thrive and succeed. And so if I was going to ask, you know, something that to just consider as a takeaway from today is, Think about someone who's younger than you. All of us have someone who's younger than us. And maybe just thinking about how can I take extra time 
in the next few days, in the next week, week and a half, you know, to just pause and understand better their perspective, their values, where they're coming from. How can I pause and ask um, some questions, you know, and actively listen and better understand the perspective of someone who's younger than me, uh, which is really just that emotional intelligence in play. And what we're finding is that has so much power in every context, in the family, in the workplace, whether you're the military, in a school, in the business world, just knowing that people really care about them and are willing to listen is just so powerful in building intergenerational trust and rapport, which is what we desperately need today as we're navigating the challenges in our world. So yeah, I would just encourage you to just be intentional and really connecting, understanding someone younger than you in a little more um, specific way. That's awesome. We really appreciate your insights. Um, I, I, I love to continue the conversation, but then Ann, thank you so much for making time. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. This has been wonderful. I always like talking about this stuff. So thank you for the opportunity.